Terrell. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Dan Palazzolo. I'm the co-director of the Marshall Center, along with my colleague, Terry Price, who's seated over here to my left. And I want to welcome you here this afternoon. This is a hearty group of people. Expected over 250, if you can tell by the size of the room. Um, but we got a we got a high quality group of people here today. You can see that, that's for sure. As usual, we'll be videotaping our talk today, so those who couldn't make it can watch it online. Of course, you can refer back to it. Um, and I want to thank you for coming today. You know, John Marshall was a prolific walker. And it dawned upon me today that he probably walked in a, you know, a few rainstorms and even some hurricanes in the day. So uh, we made it here today and we're grateful for that. Um, the Thomas uh, W. Smith Foundation is, is, uh, contributes to the Marshall Center and we're grateful for, for that support. Uh, we have a speaker series this year like every year. Uh, and there's a brochure here at the table to my left. Uh, if you want to pick one of those up, you can uh, do that on your way out. We also have coffee and cookies today, uh, so help yourself to that. We're grateful for that. Um, we also have a copy of Joel Paul, Richard Paul's book, Without Precedent, and he will be signing copies at the end of the talk. As usual, he will talk for about 45 minutes or so, and we'll have an opportunity for questions. So please uh, join me in thanking and welcoming uh, Kevin Walsh, a professor of law, who's going to introduce our speaker. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I am uh, delighted to be here with you this afternoon to introduce Professor Joel Richard Paul for his talk, John Marshall and the Defense of the Rule of Law. Uh, we're very fortunate uh, to have Professor Paul with us this afternoon, notwithstanding uh, the weather. Uh, he's a denizen of the West Coast and wish he had brought some of that with him. Uh, but earlier uh, this afternoon, uh, he spoke at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and has just been very generous with his time uh, here in Richmond. As a professor at the University of California, Hastings, Professor Paul teaches constitutional law, international economic law, and foreign relations law. He's also the former dean of global programs there. I'm not sure if there's anywhere in the world he hasn't been uh, or recruited students from. Uh, today's talk arises out of uh, his latest book, uh, Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall uh, and His Times. And I will say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Professor Paul wrote this book. You know, when we are part of an organization called the John Marshall Foundation, when we go around trying to promote Marshall, they say, you know, you need a musical, like Hamilton, something like that. Well, Professor Paul's last book, Unlikely Allies, uh, How a Merchant, a Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution, uh, has been turned uh, by him uh, into a musical. Uh, so perhaps, uh, I think Marshall might need a miniseries, though, because his life was so uh, full, uh, one uh, it, it, it longer than, yeah. So anyhow, in addition to writing about American history, Professor Paul writes about international trade policy, globalization, regulatory competition, international law, and the president's foreign relations power. It's truly no wonder that one of the strengths of this book is his discussion of Marshall's time as a foreign envoy to France during the XYZ affair, uh, his diplomacy as Secretary of State, and his treatment of presidential power. Uh, now, as you might expect from an author who writes plays and screenplays, uh, Without Precedent also provides a look 
at John Marshall's character and his personal life. Uh, one of the themes of this book is Marshall holding it all together. The opening sentence of the book uh, asserts that, quote, no one did more than Marshall to preserve the delicate unity of the fledgling republic. And the introduction concludes, as mine soon will, in a revolutionary time against myriad enemies, both foreign and domestic, Marshall held the court, the Constitution, and the Union together. Today, we have the privilege of hearing how Marshall's defense of the rule of law contributed to this grand enterprise. Please join me in welcoming Professor Joel Richard Paul. much, Professor Walsh and Dean Marizolo. It's uh, really a great pleasure to, to be here at the University of Richmond. I'm, I'm grateful to all of you for coming on such a threatening weather day. And I'm reminded of another threatening storm in uh, Richmond, Virginia on June 24th, 1787. Uh, that was during the ratification debates when John Marshall was famously arguing with uh, James Madison in favor of the Constitution against Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry uh, gave this wonderful very long oration at the end opposing the Constitution and talking about how the Constitution would be a tremendous threat, not just to our country's uh, liberty, but to all of mankind. And while he's giving this oration, there's this huge sudden storm that comes up outside the hall, and they're battered with hailstones and lightning and thunder and rain that people have never seen before in Richmond. So I'm hoping that's not going to happen tonight. But um, uh, if, it is, if, it, if it does happen, my talk will be that much more memorable, I hope. Um, so uh, I, I know some of you were at my talk earlier today, uh, and I appreciate your coming for seconds. I will try to be somewhat varied, but um, some of this may sound like familiar territory to you. Uh, When I started writing this book seven years ago, I didn't anticipate the level of interest that now exists in the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, my publisher's delighted by that, of course. The rest of us, not so much. But uh, particularly after a week like last week, where the country feels very divided and, and polarized by some of the bitter politics surrounding the confirmation hearing, um, uh, there's a feeling, I think, uh, throughout the country, in, in various pockets of the country, that there's a, there's a sense in which norms are changing very rapidly, uh, constitutional norms, uh, our ideas about uh, the rule of law. And uh, this is something which is perhaps without precedent. Um, we've had a kind of normative earthquake uh, happening in the country. And many people are afraid that we're on the kind of precipice of some kind of constitutional crisis that, that could erupt in a situation where, for example, um, the uh, special counsel looking into the Russia investigations issues some kind of subpoena that maybe the president may or may not comply with, and how exactly would the courts behave and what would happen then. Uh, and it strikes me that one of the great secrets of our success in, uh, in the United States has been our cultural commitment to the rule of law. Uh, other countries have written constitutions, but none that has survived as long as our constitution has. 
And, and part of that is because from the very outset of our republic, there's been a deep cultural commitment to the rule of law and to the idea of the independence of our judiciary. <clears throat> and, and that really helps to promote not just our, our government, our political life, but also our economic life. Because people have the sense that there's a stability of expectations, that, that contracts and property rights and personal liberties are secured by our court system. Many people have suggested that there's a kind of analogy, at least this is what I hear when I go on the road talking about uh, John Marshall, that there's, a, there's an analogy here to the Nixonian crisis, the Watergate crisis. Um, and I, I don't think that's exactly right. Um, uh, because whereas the Watergate crisis, we had a situation where the president was served with a subpoena in order to turn over tapes. And the president initially refused to do so, invoking his right to executive privilege. And then, of course, we have a Supreme Court decision, an unanimous decision, and the president complied with that, and we know what happened. Um, in some ways, the situation we now face may be a little bit more frightening uh, for three reasons, I think. One is that uh, Nixon faced the fact that his, the Congress was in the hands of the opposition party. Um, and so he faced the real possibility of impeachment, which I don't think is likely to happen in this case. Um, and secondly, um, Nixon, for all of his faults, I think was a man who was an attorney. He had, I think, an actual commitment to and respect for uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think when the Supreme Court gave its decision in that case, it was clear that Nixon was going to comply with the court's decision. That may not necessarily be true in the present circumstances, because the president has, from time to time, expressed some animosity for the judicial process and criticism of the attorney general. Uh, and also the special counsel's office. Uh, and, uh, and also because the court itself is so deeply divided. Uh, and finally, the third element is that we have uh, the fact that there is, a, there is substantial evidence, I think there's now a consensus, that there was foreign interference in the election. There is continuing foreign interference in our election process. No one's quite sure exactly how that's going to play out in the coming uh, midterm elections. I think a better analogy to the present crisis is really uh, the Jeffersonian crisis in 1801. Um, because Jefferson, in many ways, is much like President Trump. Um, uh, he was a populist uh, who was elected uh, to office as a disruptor, as someone who was going to shake things up, going to clear things out, going to change the ways of Washington, uh, who was clearly uh, opposed to national power in many ways, and critical of national power. And um, some people and I don't realize this, but he was largely uh, connected or, or, or seen as being social, uh, seen as being connected uh, to a foreign power, in that case, France. The, uh, the Republican Party itself, and when I say Republican Party, now I'm talking about the Jeffersonian Republicans, not the current Republican Party. But the Jeffersonian Republican Party was really started by the French. Uh, it was the French ambassador to the United States, uh, Edmund Charles Genet, known as Citizen Genet, who came to this country and organized Republican clubs along the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, and that became actually the foundation for the Jeffersonian Republican Party. Uh, uh, and of course, Jefferson was himself very sympathetic to the French revolutionaries. When France had its revolution, uh, Jefferson was 
was our emissary to France. And he supported the revolutionaries when um, Louis XVI was decapitated. Jefferson um, defended the French revolutionaries and said, well, that was just a collateral damage uh, of a revolution. Uh, when his good friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, was arrested and threatened with execution. And Jefferson didn't raise a word of protest. Um, and so many people saw Jefferson as a French revolutionary, as somebody who was under foreign influence and, and who was a threat uh, to our democratic norms. Uh, and that explains why, uh, after his election, uh, and the month before he's going to take office, uh, the Federalist John Adams uh, decides they've got to do something, they've got to build a wall to protect against the influence of the Republicans coming in, they commanded both houses of Congress uh, and the President, the threat that they pose to our Constitution. And so um, the Federalists do three things. First of all, they pass the 1801 Judiciary Act, which was an act that created the first uh, courts of appeal, the circuit courts in the United States. Up to that point, there were no courts of appeal. Um, so they create all these courts of appeal and appoint all these judges uh, in the hopes that these judges will help to create a barrier against actions that the Republicans may be planning to take. And secondly, uh, and as part of that, uh, they also decided to reduce the size of the Supreme Court. So there were six justices on the Supreme Court at the time. They cut the size of the court to five so that um, Jefferson wouldn't be able to appoint anyone on his own. And Adams appointed two of those justices. One of them um, was, uh, we'll talk about later, but the, uh, uh, one of those justices was the position of the chief justice. He had to fill that job. And at the time, nobody really wanted the job as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In fact, nobody wanted to be on the Supreme Court. It was a lousy job. Uh, it didn't pay very well. Uh, justices of the Supreme Court had to get on horseback and ride around the country, a riding, riding circuit, literally, uh, hearing cases in taverns, and sleeping in inns, sharing beds with strangers. <clears throat> and uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of prestige to be a Supreme Court Justice. It was much more prestigious uh, to be a Supreme Court Justice in uh, Virginia uh, than it would be a Supreme Court Justice in the United States. Virginia, as, a, as an important state, as a state which had lots of interesting cases, the Supreme Court of the United States typically had about six cases a year. Uh, in fact, when they were designing Washington, D.C., they forgot to build a courthouse. Uh, no one thought of the Supreme Court as being a co-equal branch of the government. Uh, and when they met for the first time in Washington, D.C., uh, the court was consigned to work out of a committee room on the ground floor of the Capitol. They shared a small committee room with the uh, circuit court and the D.C. court. Um, that explains why no one wanted the job as Chief Justice. And so when John Adams offers the job to John Jay, John Jay turns them down. And then John Adams turns to his Secretary of State, John Marshall, and says, you've got to take the job. I can't fill it. And I've only got a few days left. So John Marshall takes the job as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the same time that he's Secretary of State. He serves both jobs at the same time, which, of course, today we would regard as a violation of the principles of separation of powers. And Marshall, when he takes the job, he doesn't really want the job either. He's taking the job out of loyalty to the Federalist Party. He would much rather come home to to Richmond, Virginia, um, to be with his wife, Polly, um, who is too sick to travel or to come to Washington with him. And 
And yet he gives, and yet he figures that he has no choice in this situation because Adams needs him and the Federalists need him. Plus, he so deeply fears and hates Thomas Jefferson. Um, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson are, are both bitter enemies, and it's not helped by the fact that they're cousins. Um, John Marshall and uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, grew up on opposite sides of the Randolph uh, family tree. Uh, the uh, Tuckahoe um, was the home of John Marshall's grandmother. And uh, someday, I suppose, uh, his family expected that they were going to inherit the home, except that his grandmother was a bit of a wild woman, it turns out. And she got herself disinherited by the rest of the family. And so instead, uh, Peter Randolph uh, turned to his, I'm sorry, not Peter Randolph, uh, uh, not Peter Randolph, I forget now, uh, turned to his friend Peter Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson's father, and said to him, um, I'd like you to come and be the executor of my estate and take over Tuckahoe. And so Tuckahoe went to the Jefferson side of the family rather than the Marshall side of the family. And, and instead, Marshall grew up in poverty, basically, in a, in a log cabin on the western frontiers of Virginia. Not without any of the privileges that, that Thomas Jefferson had. He, he, he didn't have the formal education. Um, he only had one year of grammar school. Um, and uh, I'm sure that that sort of shaped the family dynamic. And the other aspect of this was uh, that uh, John Marshall married Polly Amber, who happened to be the daughter of uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, first girlfriend in love, uh, who had turned Thomas Jefferson down when he proposed marriage to her. So you can imagine that didn't sit so easily with Thomas Jefferson either. Uh, that sort of family dynamic fed into their philosophical differences that they had. Uh, Thomas Jefferson as the leader of the Republican Party, and uh, John Marshall as the leader of the Federalist Party. So John Marshall takes the job. Um, and Jefferson, of course, is furious that his cousin, his, his, his low-bred cousin, has, has this job now as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And, and the first thing Republicans do when they come to power is they pass um, the, uh, a, a repeal act to repeal the act that created the circuit courts. The other thing that the uh, uh, Federalists had done was they had created um, the D.C. Circuit Act, this D.C. Organic Act, which had created uh, 42 justices of the peace in the District of Columbia. This was really just a kind of political patronage that the uh, Federalists had offered to their friends in the District of Columbia. It was kind of just an honorary position. And 42 justices of the peace were frankly more than they needed in the city with just 3,000 people. But um, uh, when Jefferson takes office, uh, he, he discovers on John Marshall's desk these 42 commissions sitting on the desk that haven't been delivered to the new justices of peace. And Jefferson says, let's not deliver them. So he orders his Secretary of State, James Madison, not to deliver the commissions. And then, um, in addition to that, just out of spite, the Republicans canceled the Supreme Court's term in 1802. Um, just to prevent them from doing anything in response to any of these other actions. Well, this, of course, sets us up for the famous case of Marbury versus Madison. And what's going on in the background here is that the, the Republicans are really determined to rid themselves of the nuisance posed by the Federalists on the judiciary. 
And so they start out impeaching Federalist judges around the country. Uh, they start in Pennsylvania with Judge Addison, they impeach him and convict him. They, then they go to New Hampshire, they impeach and convict uh, just, uh, Judge Tickerin. Um, and then they turn to the Supreme Court itself uh, and they impeach um, uh, Justice Samuel Chase, who was better known by his uh, uh, nickname, uh, which was Old Bacon Face Chase. Uh, he, was a, he was a kind of prickly character. He was a bit of a bully, and he was, he was very opinionated, and he was sort of seen as being a very outspoken Federalist. So they, they, they impeach these judges, and it's quite clear when they impeach Samuel Chase that he is a proxy for John Marshall. Um, they're basically firing a warning shot across the bow. They're letting John Marshall know, and the rest of the Supreme Court Federalists know, that their, their time is limited. <clears throat> and it's in that environment that Marbury versus Madison erupts. Uh, William Marbury uh, is one of the guys who was entitled to one of the commissions as Justice of the Peace uh, in the District of Columbia. Uh, his commission had been approved by the Senate. It had been signed by the President. Uh, John Marshall, the Secretary of State, had put the stamp of the United States on the commission. And it was sitting on his desk, but it hadn't been delivered before Jefferson takes power. William Marbury decides he really wants this commission. Uh, and so he goes to court, and he hires Charles Lee, one of the great lawyers of his day in Virginia. And Charles Lee files a case against uh, Madison to compel him to turn over this commission. Um, and uh, he's filing for an order known as a writ of mandamus. Um, and he files the case in the Supreme Court under something known as Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act. Uh, now the truth is that William Marbury doesn't want this job. <laughs> the truth is that William Marbury could care less about this job. Uh, the job of Justice of the Peace at the time was an honorary position. It didn't pay anything. There was no salary can attached to it. The job was to basically arrest prostitutes and drunks, not glamorous. And uh, uh, William Marbury, who's the president of the largest bank in the District of Columbia, he came from a wealthy uh, family in, in Maryland. Uh, his home is still in Georgetown. Uh, it's, it is now the Ukrainian embassy, which makes you wonder why the Ukrainians keep popping up in every story. But the Ukrainian embassy um, is, was his home. And he, he, uh, he didn't want the job as Justice of the Peace. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to embarrass uh, Thomas Jefferson. That's what he was trying to do here. He was trying to, to make a point uh, about uh, uh, the way that the Republicans behave. Now, this poses two kinds of problems for John Marshall, uh, who's recently appointed Chief Justice. <clears throat> um, one problem is that he knows that any order that they come up with, James Madison is going to ignore. The, the, the Supreme Court does, doesn't have the kind of prestige, the kind of authority to be able to tell the President or the Secretary of State what to do. Uh, uh, in point of fact, uh, James Madison, who's being sued in this case, doesn't even bother showing up in court. He doesn't even hire a, an attorney to represent him because he sort of considers the whole thing is you know, not very serious. So Marshall has that problem to face. The other problem he faces is an evidentiary problem. 
uh, you know, when you file a case in court, you've got to have some sort of evidence uh, to back up your claim. How could, how could William Marbury prove that he was entitled to a commission if the commission hadn't been delivered to him? Charles Lee, his attorney, uh, goes to the Senate and says, you know, could you, you know, give me the congressional record to show that you approved his commission? And they say, no. The Senate is in the hands of the Republican Party. They're not going to cooperate. He goes to the Secretary of State's office. The Secretary of State couldn't care less. He's not going to cooperate either. But one person who could really prove that, that, that William Marbury was entitled to the commission was John Marshall. But he was on the Supreme Court. He couldn't ask John Marshall to give testimony in his own court. So John Marshall's brother, James, who was also a uh, circuit court judge, uh, he comes and he, uh, he gives it an affidavit in court court saying that I was asked to deliver the commission and I never got around to it and I'm really sorry but I saw the commission and I'm sure it existed. And that's the only evidence that William Marbury has that he was entitled to this commission. It turns out that's a lie. James Madison in fact had nothing to do with it and the reason I know that is I discovered a letter that uh, John Marshall wrote to his brother, I'm sorry, James Marshall had to do with it. Uh, I discovered a letter that John Marshall wrote to James shortly after Jefferson was elected, in which he says, you're never going to believe this, but I made a huge mistake. Um, I left all the judicial commissions on my desk. I forgot to deliver the commissions. What am I going to do? So it's quite clear that James Marshall and John got together and they agreed to essentially suborn perjury. Um, to present this false affidavit. Now, I wouldn't attempt to justify that, but in fact, everybody knew that Marbury was entitled to this commission. <coughs> you know, the public knew about the commission. Uh, so it was you know, nothing really controversial to assert that there was a commission. It's just that this was a way around that. And I'm not justifying supporting perjury. Um, so that's one problem. But we still have the problem of how do we make an order that the president is not going to uh, 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 comply with because if the court issues an order telling him to deliver the commission and the president doesn't comply, then the court loses its authority. So Marshall decides a couple of things. One thing is that the court has to speak with one voice, that we can't have a divided court. We have to have everybody on, on the team. And so he really goes to develop the kind of fraternity on the court that makes it possible for a unanimous decision. Uh, and he works the judges together and gets them all to agree on this opinion. And the opinion basically says two things. The first thing it says is that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are in violation of the, of the law. That Congress passed a law creating these positions as justices of the peace. They approve this commission the commission was signed and it was sealed, and Marbury was entitled to his commission. And then they said, but we don't have jurisdiction. Now that's a little strange, because courts don't normally decide cases and then announce that they don't have jurisdiction to hear the case. But that's effectively what Marshall did in this opinion. And the reason they don't have jurisdiction, he says, is that Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act, under which Marbury had filed for this writ of mandamus is in conflict with Article 3 of the Constitution. Article 3 of the Constitution, you may know, is the, art, is the article that 
creates the Supreme Court. And the 1789 Judiciary Act is the, Section 13 was the section that gave the court, presumably, the power to issue its mandates. Now, Marshall says that because Article 3 didn't envision giving the Supreme Court that kind of authority to issue a written mandamus, therefore, Section 13 is unconstitutional. It's contrary to the Constitution, and he says that the court has the authority to strike down laws which are contrary to the Constitution. That, of course, is the basis for the principle of judicial review. In fact, there was no such conflict. In fact, Article 3, if you look at the text of Article 3, if you look at the text of Section 13, they don't say what Marshall says they say. Um, Article 3 doesn't preclude the Supreme Court from taking on additional forms of jurisdiction. And Section 13 of the Judiciary Act does not, in fact, say that the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear writs of mandamus. Charles Lee, the smartest lawyer in Virginia, filed the case in the wrong court. And he did so intentionally. And I suspect that Marshall was part of this. That Marshall, in fact, engineered the case from the beginning. Because it was a clever way in which Marshall could establish the principle of judicial review by having the case filed in the wrong court and then claiming that the law had given the court the authority it didn't in fact have to hear the case and then claiming that that was unconstitutional and presuming to strike down Section 13. He established a principle that up to that point in time hadn't really been completely clear. But it wasn't that controversial a position to take that the court had the power of judicial review. In fact, Jefferson himself didn't contest the authority of the court to strike down laws that were contrary to the Constitution. The real significance of Marbury versus Madison is the fact that the court, for the first time, sat in judgment on the actions of the executive branch and declared that the actions of the executive branch were illegal, were contrary to the laws of Congress. That's the real significance here. And, and the reason that's so important is that that is the essence of the rule of law. It is the essence of the idea that everybody's accountable to the law, that no one is above the law, that everybody is subject to the law, including even Secretary of State or the President of the United States. <coughs> and this wasn't the only time uh, that Marshall established or, or put forward this idea of the rule of law. He, again and again, in his opinions, what we see is this sort of constant theme. Uh, in, for example, the case of Little versus Barama, a lesser known case, uh, which is a case involving a, a question about uh, whether or not a naval officer could be found guilty for following an order of the president, which was itself contrary to an act of Congress. And in Little versus Barem, the president, uh, John Marshall says that the president, the president cannot make legal that which is illegal. He cannot change the legal status of something. If the president gives an order which is contrary to an act of Congress, it is illegal, he says. Or in the case of Charming Betsy, uh, in which John Marshall says that international law is part of our law, and that at every act of Congress has to be read in light of international law. And so if Congress passes a law in which there's some ambiguity, he says we have to read that law in a way that is consistent with international law because even Congress is beholden to the, to the law of nations. Or in Worcester versus Georgia, 
a case in which it says that the state of Georgia cannot intrude upon the, the territory of Native American tribes, uh, that the sovereignty of those tribes has to be respected by the states. In each of these cases, John Marshall sees the rule of law properly as a kind of limitation on power, uh, as a way in which both the president, the executive branch, Congress, and the states themselves all have to be held accountable uh, to our legal system. And what's remarkable about all these opinions is that they're all unanimous, um, that Marshall somehow manages to get the court to always sort of go along with him through his personality and his intellect. He wins everybody over to his side and he finds common ground, finds some way to reach compromises on the court. So who was this guy? I mean, here's a guy who, who grows up in, in, in incredible poverty uh, in a two-room log cabin with his 14 brothers and sisters sharing 400 square feet of space, uh, eking out a living on the western frontier of Virginia, who has no formal education apart from their grammar school, uh, and who goes on to, at age 19, to join the Faulkner Rifles, which was a group of sharpshooters during the American Revolution. And these guys went around wearing uh, deerskin trousers with, uh, with fringe on them and hunting shirts with the slogan, Liberty or Death, and they carried tomahawks into battle. Um, uh, and, and he is immediately recognized as a leader among this group of men. At age 19, he becomes a captain. Um, and uh, he goes on to fight uh, in some of the some of the worst battles in Virginia, in Norfolk, and in, and in uh, 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 here in Richmond, uh, and he distinguishes himself at Valley Forge, where he serves with uh, uh, John, uh, where, he's, where he serves with Alexander Hamilton before he became a musical, um, and uh, George Washington, uh, and um, the great uh, Prussian uh, general Baron von Steuben who was, in fact, neither a baron nor a Prussian general. But that's another story. And he, he in, in all of these situations, he impresses these guys so much that George Washington elevates him to become Judge Advocate General of the US Army before he, Marshall has ever gone to law school. Uh, and then Marshall um, decides to go to law school only because he's following his girlfriend, Polly Ambler, who uh, is in uh, Williamsburg at the time. So he enrolls at, at, uh, um, William, at William and Mary, um, and he gets six weeks of legal education. That's it. My law students are very envious of that. Um, he gets six weeks of legal education, and then he comes back to Richmond he gives up law school, basically, because Polly moves back to Richmond. So he moves back to Richmond with her and decides he needs an excuse for staying in Richmond, so he runs for the House of Delegates. And he gets elected to the House of Delegates as a reform-minded conservative in the House of Delegates. Uh, he, 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 he fights for racial equality in Virginia. Um, uh, he uh, he uh, proposed legislation um, to recognize that every person, regardless of their race, is a citizen of the state. Um, every free person is a citizen of the state. Uh, uh, he also works for the manumission of, of, to, to liberalize the conditions for manumission of slaves. And then he's elected to the ratification convention where he really takes the leadership role. The ratification debates here in Virginia, uh, it was far from clear that, that Virginia would pass the Constitution because um, uh, there was great opposition. Patrick Henry led the opposition to the Constitution. 
institution. And it was John Marshall and James Madison uh, who, were the, who were the principal proponents of the Constitution. And Madison, for all of his brilliance and his talent uh, as a draftsman of the Constitution, um, he was a bit of a nerd. And he didn't have a great personality. He had a, his head was too big and he had a squeaky voice. And people thought he was kind of not much fun to hang out with. But Marshall was a blast to hang out with. Uh, Marshall was very funny, he was very gregarious, he was very handsome, he was very, uh, he told great stories, and Marshall managed to win over the delegates. He would take them uh, to his favorite tavern here in Richmond for a, a glass of beer, and one by one, one of the delegates, and the, the ratification in Virginia, the ratification vote, the Constitution passed by 10 votes. Without John Marshall, there's little doubt the Constitution would not have been approved by Virginia, and without Virginia, there would not have been a Constitution. He was the indispensable man in the ratification debates and in the ratification of the Constitution. And then, um, when we start having problems with France, the French begin to interfere with our shipping because they're not very happy about the election of John Adams. And John Adams decides to send John Marshall to France to try to negotiate with the French. He gets to France uh, with two other guys, uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and Elbridge Gary. Uh, the fellow whose principal accomplishment in life is the is what we know known as gerrymandering. Um, uh, I hope I remember something better than that. Um, but Gary and and um, and uh, Pinkney and Marshall sit down to meet with the French Foreign Minister uh, uh, Monsieur Talleyrand. And Monsieur Talleyrand, uh, the first thing, it, it, Monsieur Talleyrand is a fa fantastic figure to write about because he's probably the most immoral person of the age. And there was a lot of competition. Right. Uh, he's just completely duplicitous and, and notorious for it. And the first thing he does is he asks them for a bribe of $4 million. And um, Pinkney kind of equivocates and maybe uh, Gary is willing to go along with it, but Marshall says, absolutely not. We're not going to pay the bribe. So uh, uh, Tallyhall seizes his, their passports, refuses to let them leave France. They spend nine months in France in which they are besieged by spies and people trying to threaten them or pressure them into paying the bribe to the French government. Meantime, the negotiations go nowhere. Um, uh, and Marshall stands up to the French. When he comes back from France, He's sort of seen as the hero of what's known as the XYZ affair. And uh, George Washington sits him down and says, you now have to run for Congress. And Marshall doesn't want to run for Congress. He wants to stay here in, in Richmond. Who wants to be in Congress when you can live in Richmond? So uh, Marshall refuses initially, but, but Washington prevails on him. And he runs for Congress and is elected. In his single term in Congress, uh, he becomes the leader of the Federalist Party in Congress. Uh, uh, he's the guy who gives the eulogy for George Washington uh, in, the, in the House of Representatives. And then Adams turns to him and wants him to be the, um, uh, the next uh, uh, Secretary of State. And Adams had previously offered him the job as Secretary of War or Attorney General, and he turned both of those jobs down. But now Marshall has a reason for taking the Secretary of State's job, because he figures, well, you know, if I take that job, it gives me a chance to get out of Congress. Because basically, I can, Adam's term is up in nine months, so I'll go become Secretary of State for nine months, and I'll say thank you very much, and go home to my wife and Polly, and go live in Richmond. So that's what I'll do. That's how I'll get out of Congress. 
So he takes the job as Secretary of State. And the first thing that happens to him is he, he goes to Washington, which is still under construction, and Adams meets him. They don't really know each other. And, and if Adams meets him, and Adams says to him, my wife, Gabrielle, can't stand this place. She thinks it's a swamp. And um, I'm going back to live with her in Quincy. Here are the keys. You're in charge. And he leaves. <laughs> and Marshall literally runs the entire government. I mean, the, uh, every department of government, apart from the War Department, is under John Marshall. And John Marshall, at the same time, is overseeing the construction of Washington, D.C. So he's overseeing, he's literally laying the streets down in Washington, D.C. and looking at the construction every day of the Capitol and the White House and the Treasury Department. At the same time, uh, he has to deal with the fact that the U.S. is threatened with war, uh, threatened with war by France, Britain, Spain, and the Barbary Pirates. And he does all of that with nine people on his staff at the State Department. $15,000, which is just enough money for firewood and stationery. That's it. That's his whole budget. Um, and he does it. He does it brilliantly. And he sort of navigates his way through all of these domestic and international problems simultaneously while expecting to go home to Polly at the end of it. But of course, that doesn't happen. Instead, he becomes Chief Justice. And as Chief Justice, he does so many things. Um, he is um, he's the guy who basically uh, uh, establishes the principle not just of the supremacy of the Supreme Court, but of the supremacy of the federal government over the states. Um, he really establishes the idea that Congress has very broad powers, and this is really important because Marshall was an opponent of slavery, and Marshall hoped that by giving Congress broader authority to regulate the economy, um, that he would help to knit the country together more closely, but it would also give Congress the authority ultimately regulate slavery out of existence. Um, and he establishes this idea that international law is part of our law and that not just Americans, but aliens have rights under our Constitution. Uh, he also establishes, as I said, the, the, the rights of the Indian tribes. Um, and perhaps most important, and he also establishes the notion that the corporations and private colleges like this one uh, and, uh, and private property are protected by the Constitution. And perhaps most importantly, he establishes, really establishes, the significance of the First Amendment. Because at this point in time, after uh, uh, Jefferson takes office, Jefferson, of course, you know, in the second term, uh, he, uh, uh, he puts his vice president, Aaron Burr, on trial for treason. And, and, and Marshall is the judge in the treason trial. And Marshall um, uh, clearly feels that the there's very little evidence to support the charge of treason in this case. And then Jefferson comes up with a new idea, a new theory, a new charge of constructive treason. Constructive treason was a theory uh, that existed under ancient uh, British law uh, in which the king could hold someone for treason if that person insulted them. And he basically said that he felt insulted by Aaron Burr. Um, and he wanted the court to try Aaron Burr on the grounds of constructive treason. And Marshall rejects this. Marshall says, you know, the First Amendment precludes any such charge. Now just think for a moment what it would have meant if Marshall had allowed that to happen. Um, if, if Jefferson had succeeded in executing his vice president, today we wouldn't think about Jefferson as a great civil libertarian. We'd be thinking about Jefferson as a bloodthirsty tyrant. 
I mean, Marshall ironically saves Jefferson's reputation. Uh, but Jefferson didn't appreciate it at the time. Uh, perhaps he does now. <coughs> I think the essence of Marshall's genius was his capacity to bring people together, to find common ground in the defense of the rule of law, his ability to see compromise wherever compromise was possible, even when it didn't appear that compromise was possible. Part of that is a reflection of his personality, part of it is a reflection of his intellect, part of it is, is a willingness to sometimes sort of give a little um, uh, to the other side. Uh, and I think Marshall faced uh, a world which is, in many ways, much like our own times, uh, in the sense that the country, in a revolutionary age, was deeply divided and very polarized. Um, and it seemed difficult at that time for anyone to try to forge a consensus. But somehow Marshall managed to do so. The politics of his time were no less ruthless than our own. Uh, and he didn't have the benefit uh, of any precedent to guide him, but he somehow creatively navigated his way through these various crises, domestic and international, uh, choosing his battles prudently to forge consensus um, and applying pragmatism wherever possible. I think that democracy requires practical statesmanship. The practical jurists, practical statesmen, people who prefer compromise to chaos and who understand that the single-minded pursuit of one's own ideology or one's own ego uh, can sometimes lead to a civil war. Uh, more than any other American, I believe, John Marshall set the foundations of our republic that have guided our nations for more than two centuries. He had the courage of his imagination, uh, the wisdom to find common ground, and the grace to hold together a fragile union. Uh, thank you. That's what I'm happy to take questions if people have some questions. Yes, sir. Do you think growing up in a 400 square foot house with 14 siblings had an impact on his ability to find common ground? Well, I think that's an excellent point. I, I think it had. I think he's the eldest of the 14 uh, of, of 15 children, and I think that a lot of his leadership came from the fact that he was the oldest of others, uh, because you know he, he was 19 when he takes takes over a, a regiment of, of the Fauquier rifles. I mean, he's, he, you know, he's just a natural born leader. Uh, and he clearly, he was a guy who was just really resilient. And maybe having lots of brothers and sisters and being stuck in a place where there's not much else to do, um, made him, gave him a great imagination and a capacity for, uh, for playfulness. Uh, the stories about Marshall when he was living, when he was in, in Valley Forge, uh, uh, he really sort of stuck out because everybody at Valley Forge was, was pretty miserable. It was, it was very, very hard. And Marshall went around playing games with people, teasing people, making fun of himself. Um, he was always kind of happy and, and upbeat and, and kind of stuck out uh, in that sort of situation. And I think that kind of resilience and, and that playfulness uh, was also part of his charm and his success. Yes, sir. What was the term for the Supreme Court back then? And when did that, how did that evolve? How did that change? Uh, the term of the length of service. Length of service. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so basically, you know, all under Article Three, uh, all the justices have lifetime tenure. But um, the question is a good one because <laughs> uh, nobody was interested in lifetime tenure there. 
Um, uh, John Marshall is one of the few justices who, who died while in office uh, at that point. Um, because before him, you know, it was, just wasn't that, that useful uh, in the court. And, uh, one of the things I, I, I felt to mention is that um, you know, Marshall, in his 34 years in the court, longer than any other chief justice, he had participated in over 1,100 decisions. More than half of those decisions he wrote himself, you know, in longhand, and his opinions are very long, as my students will tell you. His opinions are very long and very wordy and very eloquent. And he wrote all these decisions, and of those decisions, all were 35 unanimous. And what makes that record of unanimity even more incredible is that every judge who was appointed to the court after John Marshall was appointed by a Republican who was committed to overturning Marshall's jurisprudence. And yet Marshall somehow managed to just sort of seduce people with his personality, his willingness to find compromise, and he was always able to forge some common ground. Something we obviously need today. Yes, sir. Um, Adams and Jefferson eventually reconciled. Did Marshall and Jefferson ever? Good question. No, um, uh, Marshall and Jefferson did not. It never, never came close. To, to any sort of a consensus. I mean, they were very civil to each other in, in public. Um, they wrote nasty things about each other in private correspondence. Um, but um, they, they could never reconcile. You talk about the engineering that John Marshall did around the Marbury uh, case. Does, does that theory go back as far as uh, perhaps he accidentally on purpose forgot to deliver the commissions. I mean, was it really an oversight or was right. he thinking at that point, if I don't deliver these, yeah. then I can make yeah. the point I want to make? Yeah. I, I don't think he intentionally, uh, it's hard, that he, hard to imagine that he would have had the foresight to know what would have happened by not delivering the commissions. Um, I, I think more likely it was just that he was he was overtaxed. I mean, I mean literally, if you think about all the things he was doing with nine people in his office, and then he has to, you know, the last day he's running around delivering commissions, not just for the uh, justices of the peace, but also for all of the circuit court judges. So he had all of these commissions to deliver at once, and he just, he didn't have the, the personnel to do it. I don't think he imagined that Jefferson wouldn't deliver the commissions, um, although it's an interesting possibility. Yes, sir. Can you go into uh, more depth on why um, there was opposition to the Constitution here in Richmond? Why there was opposition in Richmond to the Constitution debates? Yeah. So, um, you know, the anti-federalist uh, uh, tradition is a very strong one throughout the South, especially in, in uh, Virginia, but throughout the South. Um, part of that was um, uh, the, the states were independent sovereigns. I mean, essentially, the states were like you know the uh, European states, now part of the European Union. Right? The, the national government was very weak at that point under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, Virginia, in particular, was the richest state. It was the biggest state. Um, Virginia didn't need the rest of the country. We needed Virginia more than they needed us. And so, uh, I think Patrick Henry probably felt rightly that they would be giving up power. Uh, to a central government, and in fact, that is what happened. You know, they did give up power in the central government. Sir? What was the purpose of the Republican clubs that you mentioned that the French were setting up? What, what were they up to? What yeah, well, uh, that's a good question, too. Um, so the Republican clubs, um, 
So, so part of it was a, a, a feeling of unity or a feeling of affinity for the French Revolution, support for the French Revolution. Um, Washington, of course, uh, the French had been our allies in, in, in the uh, American Revolution. Um, uh, my first, my previous book, um, Unlikely Allies, now a musical, um, is actually the story of how we forged that diplomatic relationship between the United States and France with the help of a shopkeeper from Connecticut, the French playwright uh, Capon de Beaumarchais, uh, and a cross-dressing French spy um, named the Chevalier d'Eon. And those three uh, people got together and actually forged the relationship between France uh, and, and the United States. And um, the alliance with France the alliance with France uh, required that we had to go to their defense, as well as their coming to our support. When the French and the British went to war, the French expected us to come fight on their side. But of course, we were A, too weak to fight the British, and B, it um, wasn't exactly clear who the French government was, because you had this revolutionary situation. Um, Jefferson and the Republicans uh, uh, in the United States supported the French Revolution, thought that the United States should aid the French. Um, Washington, I think, in his wisdom, thought we should maintain neutrality. We shouldn't take sides with the British or with the French because we're too weak and we have too much to lose in this situation. So Washington's neutrality policy was, was tapped by Jefferson and by the, Repub and by the uh, Republican clubs and Republicans throughout the country. Um, even though Jefferson was the Secretary of State, while he was Washington's Secretary of State, he was simultaneously secretly meeting with the French emissary, uh, Charles, uh, uh, Edwin Charles Eugenet, uh, and they were plotting to try to find ways to try to get the United States to aid the French despite Washington's neutrality policy. And uh, here in Richmond, there was a very famous debate uh, in which uh, well, actually, it wasn't a debate, it was a, it was a public meeting in which, in which uh, uh, John Marshall uh, organized uh, the citizens of Virginia to uh, issue a proclamation in support of the president's neutrality policy. And this, of course, enraged Jefferson and, and uh, Madison because they felt that it was really sort of a slap in the face of the Republican Party here in Virginia. But, you know, Marshall, that was one of the reasons why Marshall became kind of a leader in the Federalist Party. Yes. Um, putting aside the, um, the Marbury conspiracy thing, um, in writing the book, uh, what was the, the, the most surprising? I know that, that, that you found that surprising, but um, what was it sort of that, you know, after you were done writing it, you thought, wow, that's not something I knew um, going in. And then the second part is, in talking about Marshall across the country, what do you, um, uh, what in your experience do people find most interesting about him or, or uh, you know because other he's just an old man in robes kind of for a lot of people um, so. right 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 okay um so um answer the first question probably the most interesting the most fun part for me was uh, originally the book was just was not about marshall's time in the court at all it was really focusing on marshall's life as a diplomat um, and i turned to the first 300 pages which were all about marshall's life as a diplomat and a secretary of state and my editor said, okay, now let's write a general biography about Marshall, which I really had not intended to tackle that. 
Um, but in the writing about the diplomatic uh, experience of Marshall, um, this is sort of this wonderful story about how Marshall goes to France uh, as, as a commissioner, and he's, as I said, uh, Tallyhall refuses to negotiate with him until he pays this bribe, and then takes away his passport and basically holds Marsh Marshall hostage there. And while he's held hostage, there are all these people coming and threatening Marshall, and they're, you know, and it's during the middle of the French Revolution, Marshall is caught, now caught the French Revolution, it's not a scary time. And um, uh, Gary and uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney are sort of, they're kind of getting soft. They're, they're a little frightened by what's going on, and there's spies everywhere. Uh, Marshall moves in to the home of a very lovely woman who's a, a, a possibly the illegitimate daughter of Voltaire. Um, if she's not the illegitimate daughter of Voltaire, she's at least the adopted daughter of Voltaire. Uh, and um, she has things like Voltaire's actual heart in a glass, uh, a glass container in her living room. Uh, strange, but fascinating woman. She's, she's a very sophisticated, very beautiful woman, very sophisticated woman, as you can imagine. And she uh, is, is quite different from Marshall's wife, Polly. And they develop a somewhat close relationship over time. Uh, and it's not exactly clear what happens, but there's clearly a flirtation that's taking place between uh, him and his landlady. He's, after all, in France for nine months without his, without his family. Uh, and what Marshall does not realize is that she, too, is a spy working for Talia. Uh, um, and you have to read the book for the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, but um, in answer to the second part of your question about what people find, what was it, what people? They find most interesting, you know, what, 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 if you come in thinking, yeah. hey, dead white guy, uh, yeah, I, I think that most people, if they know anything at all about John Marshall, they've heard uh, Marguerite versus Madison. And they haven't really heard of any of the other things. People are surprised to learn that he was Secretary of State. They're surprised to learn that he was a great statesman and diplomat. Uh, they didn't realize that he was uh, not just a soldier, but he was, he was really a, a guy who, who was a, a, a hero of, of the American Revolution. I'll tell you one story about that. Um, uh, when, um, when Marshall was, was in the military, of course, Jefferson was, was the governor here uh, in Virginia. And he goes to Jefferson to ask Jefferson for more arms and men. Jefferson basically is too busy planning the new capital in Richmond. Um, uh, he doesn't have time to worry about the military defense of Virginia. And as a consequence of that, of course, Richmond is overrun uh, and, and burned by the British. And it's Marshall who leads the regiment back to Richmond to fight the British off, to get the British out of, uh, out of Richmond. Uh, he also um, uh, leads the initial attack on the British in Norfolk. Uh, Norfolk at the time was the largest city in, in, in Virginia. Um, and uh, the British are forced to retreat from, from Norfolk, but they then basically burn the city down to the ground. Uh, and Marshall witnesses this. And it's really, it's, it's these battles which have a really transformative effect on Marshall. It's really the, the core of his, what I call his progressive conservatism. Because what he sees, what he witnesses in these, in these terrible battles is the fragility of society uh, and the need for a strong defense and for the protection of personal property as well as personal liberty. Uh, and that really sort of shapes Marshall's political ideology. Uh, and for me, you know, that, that was one of the sort of great insights that I got out of writing the book. Thank you all very much.